From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. PreserveCast log, stardate 97757.16. Today we're speaking with Michelle Hanlon, co-founder and president of For All Moonkind, a nonprofit focused on protecting human cultural heritage in outer space. We'll push the limits of the National Register and boldly go where no preservationist has gone before. We've got 25 minutes, so let's put this podcast on warp eight and proceed on this week's PreserveCast. Before we start this week's episode, I really want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask for your help. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that depends on member contributions to fund its work. This podcast receives no government support and currently has no major funder support. Its budget is entirely dependent on listener contributions. I'm hoping you'll consider making a quick gift to help support this podcast, which is bringing important preservation stories to thousands of listeners around the country. Think of us as your preservation Netflix. Any amount helps, and you can make a quick online donation by going to preservecast.org and clicking the Donate Now button in the upper right-hand corner. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get preserving. Michelle Hanlon is co-director of the Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law and its Center for Air and Space Law. She's also a co-founder and president of For All Moonkind, a nonprofit that is the only organization in the world focused on protecting human cultural heritage in outer space. For All Moonkind has been recognized by the United Nations as a permanent observer to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Michelle chairs the International Committee of the National Space Society, and she received her BA in Political Science from Yale College and her JD from the Georgetown University Law Center. Michelle earned her LLM in Air and Space Law from McGill University, where the focus of her research was commercial space and the intersection of commerce and public law. Michelle, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Really looking forward to talking with you about your background in this work and, and the, uh, the boundaries that you're pushing when it comes to preservation. Um, I'm curious, when did you realize you were a preservationist? Because, you know, you're professional training and background is is very different than a lot of the folks that we talk to. So when did that all come about? And I suppose sort of follow up to that, when did you become so passionate about preservation beyond Earth? So first of all, thank you for having me. It's, it's such a pleasure. Um, and I'm, I'm just really delighted as, as I think you'll see, I do love to talk about what I do and, and, uh, and talk about space in particular. Um, so I, when did I become a preservationist? I mean, I think that, um, to some extent, anybody who is, you know, sort of a mini hoarder is a preservationist, right? I mean, I still have like the, the, uh, the Girl Scout pins that I got when I was in, in, 10 or 11. And I have, I think one of the oldest things that I have that I kept that my parents didn't keep for me was like a little briefcase, this red patent leather thing that I absolutely destroyed by writing my name on it in Sharpie. Um, But, you know, so at that and then growing up, um, my parents uh, were foreign service. And so we grew up all over the world. And my parents did a really wonderful thing in that we didn't sit in um, embassies or in, in uh, embassy housing. We actually went and saw a lot of stuff. And so I had a very, at a very young age, an incredible appreciation for natural beauty. Um, and then, And then when you see how humanity has 
integrated or worked with that natural beauty, sometimes really well, sometimes not well at all, is just really, really awesome to see. And so, you know, I would hesitate to um, say that I had like a preservationist moment um, until three years ago when I heard uh, Jan Werner speak. Uh, he was the head of the European Space Agency, um, and he was at a press conference in China. He is, has a wonderful vision of creating a human community on the moon, and, and he's very passionate about the, about the idea that it should be a universal human community, not a Chinese community or an American community or a Russian community, you know? And so he's trying to get um, all these partners together to collaborate. So at this press conference, he said, you know, China, we must go back to the moon if only to take down those American flags. And, and the, you know, talk about a red flag going up for right, me. Right. I was like, what? <laughs> and so, so that would uh, that would be, I say, the moment that I became very passionate about preservation and this, and started to really learn about how we do it on Earth from a legal standpoint. I'm a lawyer, so it's um, just looking from a legal standpoint how we protect these things on Earth. And so that took me down the path of looking at the uh, World Heritage Conventions. Um, looking at National Historic Societies, looking at local efforts, you know, uh, preservation efforts at the state level. I mean, the, in the United States, it's really awesome to see um, all of this bubbles up from the ground up. And so that, that's one thing that, that I'm really trying to figure out at For All Moonkind is this is probably not going to work as a top-down effort. But if we have a bubble-up effort, and, and particularly um, Maryland has such a rich history in space, and there must there must be items and sites in Maryland that contributed to the Apollo program or or to any of the space program any any space program, and those are really important memories to preserve and to hold on to because you know we're we are advancing really fast. I just saw an article today that said there were um, at least 17 missions planned for the moon. We're going back, and it's very easy to forget. Um, how we got here. Um, and in fact, you know, the terrible story about NASA when it upgraded all its computers, threw them all out, uh, all the old ones out. Um, and so we don't have any of that history. Um, and, and not only is that important for us to remember who we are and where we came from and, and be humbled by that, um, but also from a scientific standpoint, um, we did actually lose a lot of, of um, scientific research um, and when we're talking about stuff on the moon, we really want to go back and see what's happened to the stuff there. We don't want somebody to grab it and bring it back to Earth to sell it. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, um, you know, your point about Maryland, I mean, you know, where we're recording, obviously Goddard is is located in Maryland, and that was the, the communications center and, and remains the communications center, um, not only for, for the Apollo missions, but um, today for NASA, um, and probably will be the communications hub for these future landings on the moon. Um, and I, you know, I, I think your point about, um, the, the concern uh, about losing, um, this history and, and tossing out computers is an interesting one because, um, there's, there's not always a, um, a real focus, particularly in forward looking sort of scientific organizations about preserving the past, right? Like they're, they're so, they're so mission driven and so forward focus that it can be easy to lose sight of this. So it, I, I think it's great that there's someone like yourself and, and now an organization behind it 
um, kind of being that voice. And, and NASA certainly has done a better job of that in recent years. But um, to your point about tossing out the computers, that, that certainly wasn't one of their brighter moments when it came um, to, to, uh, to preservation and, and to even just telling their own story. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about the founding of For All Moonkind. You've given us a little bit of the thinking and sort of that, that first press conference where you, this, this thought and this concern was triggered. But did people take it seriously at first? Um, was there sort of a, a trajectory here? And, and how long has it been around? Tell us a little bit about how you got started and where it is today. So I, my co-founder is actually my husband, Tim Hanlon, and he's, uh, he's the, the communications guy. Um, and he did our beautiful logo and our website, um, you know, forallmoonkind.org and, and so forth. We, he's a child of Apollo. He, um, remembers vividly watching on TV when all this happened. He actually is one of the few people who watched all of the Apollo missions. I mean, I don't know if you know, but by, by Apollo 17, um, the the viewership was down below you know normal network television at that point, um, so people got tired of it really fast. But Tim has always been an Apollo aficionado, um, just so awed and inspired by what those astronauts did and, and what not just the astronauts themselves, but it really shows. And this is this is one of the reasons we are so passionate about what we do and about protecting this history. It really shows what human beings can do when they put their minds to it, when they work together, when they collaborate. Um, and remember, some people will say, oh, you know, Apollo's just was all white men, but it, it wasn't. The astronauts were white men, yes. And, but, you know, we, we just lost, um, Katherine Johnson from Hidden Figures, uh, Hidden Figures No More, thank goodness. But there are 400,000 people involved in the United States alone. And then people all over the world contributed to, um, our effort to put humans on the moon. And those efforts were also on the backs of an entire history of science and astronomy and engineering research. You know, we couldn't have gotten there without Galileo. So this is, this, the moon landing is really just a culmination of so many great minds and um, persevering minds and ex exploring minds and curious minds. And that is, that is the humans that we want to remember. And those are the humans that should inspire us into our future. And so the time, the time spent trying to protect these sites, the, the evidence of our human landings on the moon aren't just about the, the crude landings. You know, we're, we're also talking about Luna 2, which was the very first human made object ever to impact another, um, uh, celestial body. So these are incredible events. These are the most, um, incredible technological breakthroughs in our human history. And we need to celebrate them and preserve them as, as one, as, as universal and be proud of them as humans. We like to talk about the, um, the fact that, you know, a, a, a little boy or a little girl in Maryland should look up at the moon and think about those, um, uh, boot prints and be proud of them. But so should a little girl or boy in Nigeria or in, in Singapore. You know, these show not the achievement of an American. Certainly, they show the achievement of Americans, but they show the achievement of human beings. And so that's really what we wanted to capture. Yeah, and I think, I think to that point, I mean, if you look back at the way that Apollo was talked about at the time and the landings at the time, it, it was this sort of celebration of the human spirit. And it sort of transcended 
um, even though that the American flag was there, and as you know, there's a whole story associated with that, and um, and 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 how all that came to be, and the plaque that was put there, and some fascinating stuff associated with that, and and President Nixon. But there's, you know, it, it really, as you're saying, like at the time, there was there was this sense that this was this was a, a human triumph, that this was a, a triumph of the of the human, you know, people collectively. And I think a little bit of that has been lost over time. I don't think people maybe accept or, or appreciate that. And, and I think that this kind of preservation work is critical to telling that story. Because like, have we ever done anything, something as a, as, a, as a species, have we ever done anything as incredible or as amazing um, that didn't come as a result of, you know, some type of like war effort? You know what I mean? Like we, we, we don't normally put this kind of money and effort into things like this unless we're going into battle. And um, I, I think that this is, as you say, particularly in sort of a, I don't want to say a darker time, but a, a, a more pessimistic time, we need reminders that we can achieve good things too. Oh, absolutely. And, and along with, you know, the, the plaque, they're the messages of peace. Um, 74 nations um, uh, inscribed messages of peace. Oh, well, they sent letters to NASA, and then um, those letters were inscribed on a little disc. You know, again, amazing technology for the time. And that disc was left almost almost forgotten to be left, but that was left on the moon by um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And those messages of peace, um, one of our board members, uh, Tahir Rahman, has actually written in a book about it, and I recommend it to everybody because you see the, the thought that went into these letters and telegrams, and they're all to a one, 73 nations, including the United States, all of them talk about, they talk about brotherhood, you know, rather than humanhood, it's the times, but they talk about peace and how this event hopefully will bring universal peace and will make humans understand that we're all in this together. All of them say that. And it's a really remarkable, you know, disc to have up there. And, and that's one of the things we want to protect. That that disc is up there somewhere. We don't know exactly where. Buzz Aldrin threw it over his shoulder as they were <laughs> as they were getting back in. You know, it was the 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 um the text is great because it, you know, Neil says, Oh, what about the stuff in your shoulder? And he's like, Oh yeah, should I should I just drop it now? And they're like, Yeah, why not? So um so it should be just right by uh, the eagle. But but there you have it. I mean, that those are the hopes and dreams of an entire world of people. And I, I just think that that is really I, I do put on my rose tinted glasses an awful lot when I when I talk about from mankind, because that really is. I mean, the, the, the we have to acknowledge at some point that we are all in this together um, and that we are going to do our best exploration of space if we do it together. And one of the great things about the American space program, and, and I like to conjecture that the reason the Americans put humans on the moon before the Russians is because we are a diverse country. We are a country of immigrants. We brought together a lot of minds from a lot of diff different backgrounds to make this happen. And that's what we need to do. We need to bring everybody from every background together in order to, to be able to solve the problems that face us today, both here on Earth and in space. So I feel like we have a sense for the mission of For All Moonkind and, and kind of where you're headed in sort of these broad um, strokes of the story of, of your organization and, and, and why it is you exist and sort of this the lofty vision. But what are the challenges to lunar preservation? I mean, it sounds good, um, but obviously... It, it's challenging. What what are you up against? So the the biggest thing we're up against is um, the lack of knowledge. So people say to me all the time, "Oh, of course they're protected. 
You know, because the people just assume. I mean, it's it's like it, it. I mean, think about the Great Wall of China or the pyramids or Plymouth Rock. Of course, it's protected. You know, who who would even want to go and erase those blueprints? You know, why are we? This is this is a non-issue. But they're they're not protected. They're not protected under uh, U.S. law, and they're not protected under international law. So, so first big issue is awareness. You know, just this sort of oh well, you know, that's silly. Um, second is uh, the law itself. Under international law, the Outer Space Treaty says that no nation may claim sovereignty, may appropriate any territory in space. Um, so that's fine. But when you look at how we preserve heritage on Earth, we preserve sites that are within our own territory. So, um, you know, Maryland's not going to say, oh, we want to preserve that site over in Virginia. You know, Virginia's going to do that. Um, and the United States isn't going to say, well, we're going to preserve that site over in Japan. Um, but if you can't claim territory on the moon under international law, you can't claim a site as heritage. So that's really the, big, the most complex issue we're facing from a legal standpoint is how do, we, um, how do we get the international community to agree that these sites should be protected um, without making people think someone's appropriating it or claiming it as territory. And so that's why this has to be a very international effort. I'm um, very proud to say that we have been working with um, Senator Peters and Senator Cruz um, and developed the One Small Step to Protect Human Heritage Act. And um, it passed the Senate unanimously last July, and it's sitting in the House right now. Um, but that seeks to put make uh, American um, actors, uh, Americans who are people who want U.S. licenses, to promise that they won't run over the blueprints or get too close to those those historic sites. Um, and, and that's the first step. It, it can only bind U.S. citizens or people who want U.S. licenses, um, but, at least, but at least it's a first step. And the United States always leads in space law. So we're hoping that by having a U.S. Um, effort to talk about preservation, that will ignite an international effort. Um, and of course, the third thing is is the how. And well, there's two more things. How do you protect and then how do you enforce protection? One way to protect is to just say you can't go very close. But of course, that, that doesn't really help. Um, we do want scientists to go back and we do want to look at the materials and understand what happened to them. There's a lot of really vital scientific information um, sitting at all of those sites. Um, but so we can have safety zones, and but we can protect them until we have the technology to reach them safely. Um, we're also we're working with the University of Central Florida because the the regolith on the moon can be very damaging. When something lands on the moon, um, it shoots this regolith out, and it's it's like a sandstorm and pits everything. So we don't want that to happen to the heritage sites and the artifacts on the moon. And certainly the same concern, which is good, is. Um, arises with operative equipment. So that's someplace where we are working with commercial interests to figure out how to, how to protect both artifacts and operative sites. Um, and then enforcement. You know, the moon is far away. Um, if somebody goes and runs over the blueprint, what are we going to do? How can we, how can we stop it? And that's why we need these laws, because at the very least, that, that is a part of a barrier. If you didn't have any law then there's nothing stopping. At least we have, you know, everyone says, oh, we have a moral obligation to protect. Sure, but, you know, I've seen morality play out here on Earth. It, it really does help 
to have a statement, international resolution, international convention that says these sites are something special and you should not go near them unless you have the proper equipment, the proper permissions, um, the, you know, understand what you're doing. We all know what you're doing. These are vital to, um, to human, our human future to understand those and to protect those as the cradle of our spacefaring civilization. I'd like to think about, um, you know, when, when, when you have talked to archaeologists and anthropologists and, and the footsteps I talk about in Laitoli, Tanzania that were discovered in the 1970s, right? Footsteps from three million years ago, which are, um, we believe are the first up, uh, evidence of upright walking by humans. Those were discovered in 1970. We don't know why that humanoid decided to stand up on two feet. You know, we don't know what they were doing. Why did the humanoid cross the road? We have no idea. But we, we're in a position now with respect to our moon and our history on the moon to never have our uh, progeny three million years from now have to look at those, you know, dig for those boot prints and then try and figure out um, what happened and why did they do it that way. We can preserve that history so that three million years from now, People know it. They don't have to discover it. It's a compelling case, um, and I'm definitely supportive. Why don't we take a quick break here, and when we come back, um, we'll talk a little bit more about this work, where you guys are headed, and um, how people can get involved. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about August Chazelle, a leading African-American suffragist who provided essential civic training to Maryland women after the passage of the 19th Amendment. Read by Casey Roan, the primary researcher of Maryland's historic context statement on the state's suffrage legacy. Augusta Chazelle, Clubwoman for Suffrage. Before the suffrage movement, the women's club movement began to lay the groundwork for women's newfound political engagement. In the mid to late 19th century, American women formed thousands of social clubs dedicated to self-improvement through literature, arts, and culture. Gradually, many clubs turned from inward-facing social groups to activist organizations. White and Black women in Baltimore formed numerous and mostly separate women's clubs in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Both addressed similar community issues, such as improved schools, childcare for working mothers, and housing and medical care for impoverished people. In addition to these concerns, club women in Baltimore's African-American neighborhoods also grappled with the threat of Jim Crow laws and the city's adoption of the nation's first residential segregation ordinance in 1910. Clubs and civic organizations fostered women's leadership and organizing abilities. Some club women embraced the suffrage movement as the natural next step. Augusta Chiselle was a civic leader in West Baltimore who embodied this progression. 
She held leadership positions in the Women's Cooperative Civic League, a club which addressed issues of housing and public health, including food and dairy purity, clean air, and refuse disposal. This position gave her close neighborhood ties and valuable connections that she could later draw upon as an officer in the Colored Women's Suffrage Club, organized in her neighborhood in 1915 by Estelle Hall Young. Giselle hosted suffrage club meetings at her home on Druid Hill Avenue, and after the passage of the 19th Amendment, authored a column in the Baltimore Afro-American entitled, A Primer for Women Voters. With her column, Giselle advised women registering and planning to vote for the first time. Readers wrote in with questions like, what is meant by party platform? And where may I go to be taught how to vote? In response to this, she directed readers to attend the weekly meetings of the Colored Women's Suffrage Club held at the local Colored Young Women's Christian Association, which had been organized just for this purpose. In the years following the passage of the 19th Amendment, Giselle continued her community leadership. She remained engaged in the Cooperative Civic League, chairing signature events like the Flower Mart, and served as a vice president in the Baltimore branch of the NAACP through the 1960s. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast. Today, we're joined by Michelle Hanlon, uh, who's the co-director of the Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law and its Center for Air and Space Law. And she's also the co-founder and president of For All Moonkind. Um, and we've been talking with her about everything involving lunar preservation and, and why that's a challenge and um, some of the, the laws that they're trying to put in place and some law that's even passed the United States Senate and is awaiting action in the House. Um, I'm curious when you mentioned um, how this might impact, um, you know, private actors because there's, you know, there's a whole private space program now. Um, have you uh, have you talked to Elon Musk yet? <laughs> I wish <laughs> not not yet not yet. Um, you know, I think the the one thing we've talked to a lot of the, the smaller um, actors, uh, the the startups. We we have not made contact uh, with Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk yet. But I, I will say. Um, I'm not that concerned um, because this generation of spacefarers were inspired by Apollo, and I don't I don't see it. I shouldn't say I'm not that concerned. Um, I'm obviously very concerned, or else we wouldn't have started for all mankind. Um, but but the in talking to the the smaller startups, it's very clear that this generation of spacefarers were inspired by Apollo. And so when I talk to you know people from scientists or iSpace. Um, in Japan or, or Space IL in Israel, you know, it's sort of a, well, of course we're not going to go there. And that's great. So we, we have a very elite group of people who have the ability to go to the moon right now. And, and it would be, especially now with all eyes watching the first private company that goes there, you know, if, if, uh, if SpaceX or Blue Origin were to blast, uh, you know, sandblast Tranquility Base, I think there would actually be public outcry. Um, but the, 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 that pool is growing, um, and there are going to be people who are maybe not as as um, impacted by Apollo, maybe won't care as much um, about Apollo, and and that's what we really need to worry about. And and it just again, there's two reasons we want to elevate these these sites, Apollo and Luna, and other sites on the moon, not um, because 
we need to recognize them as our universal history. This is something that can bring us all together, um, and, we, and we need to protect them for our future. Um, so other people can be inspired by them. You know, before before we um, started on this on this conversation, you and I talked about technology and how um, our technology today is so much more advanced than what they used to get to the moon during the Apollo program, and and so it, that's inspiring. We had no business being on the moon at that point. That's inspiring. And that, that's what we need to protect and that's what we need to save. And, and I want my grandchildren to be able to see Tranquility Base and see um, the lunar lander and, and understand that you can do a lot um, with your own ingenuity. Very cool. And, and speaking of Apollo, it's come up a lot, obviously, because it's central to this story. Um, have you spoken with any of the, the remaining astronauts from the Apollo program about your work? Uh, we have. Um, I'm, we've, we have had the honor of uh, meeting with Buzz Aldrin and with Harrison Schmidt. Um, uh, uh, Buzz Aldrin is incredibly, I mean, they're all incredibly busy, right? So um, we have the, you know, he, we were told very encouraging words by Buzz, you know, sounds good, you know. Um, he's, he's such a wonderful, wonderful character. Um, Harrison Schmidt is, um, Jack Schmidt is just uh, I mean, I, I call him a dreamboat because, you know, he is so active right now in the lunar community trying to make sure that people understand what he learned, trying to impart his experience on the next generation so that we, uh, you know, he goes to all of these lunar exploration um, advisory group meetings to talk to people about regolith and, and the challenges of regolith. And so, you know, this man just gives and gives and gives, and it's just amazing to see, you know. Um, so when I introduced myself to him, he was honestly, um, a bit skeptical, you know, sort of, well, no, why would we, what are you worried about? We, there's resources on the moon we have to get to, and, and we can recycle a lot of those pieces. Um, and I, I quickly said, well, <laughs> you know, well, of course, you know, as a practical matter, but, you know, there, the moon is, is pretty big. We're not saying that every single site on the moon that has human material on it needs to be protected. But we, we are saying that we should stop and think, and we certainly don't need to go and ruin Tranquility Base until we've had the opportunity to really look at what needs to be protected. There's, there are 111 sites on the moon that have human material on them right now. So first of all, wow, that's a lot of stuff we've sent to the moon. Um, but secondly, no, you know, that's not 111 separate little, you know, universal parks we need to make. Um, we're working with archaeologists and anthropologists and historians to, to figure out a way to um, determine what should be protected, what doesn't need to be protected. And remember, there's different, and, and as you well know, you know, you memorialize, you protect, and you preserve. A lot of these sites, we just simply need to memorialize. Um, but no, so I, we are very honored. Um, so Dr. Schmidt has been, uh, has been wonderful and, and he has come around and he's, as we've actually, I've been talking about collaborating on some projects. So we're delighted by that. But he also said to us was, it seems kind of odd for me to argue that my site ought to be protected. You know, that doesn't, that sounds like, you know, I have a big head. He's like, I, I, it's not my position to do that. Um, and so I, we appreciate that. Um, it is kind of hard to say, well, I did that, so you got to protect it. Um, right. So, yeah, so Apollo astronauts will do it for you. So um, let me ask, if people are interested in your work, they want to get involved, how can they help out? What can they do? Where can they learn more? 
So honestly, um, we are uh, on the web uh, for allmoonkind.org. Um, and if you want to email me, we're looking for people who can code. We're looking for people who want to spread the word. Um, it is honestly really helpful if you just follow us on Twitter um, at For All Moonkind or Facebook or LinkedIn because just to see the followers and to have our message um, retweeted or, you know, uh, shared is really important. We're just trying to raise awareness as much as we can right now. Um, we, we obviously can use donations, what, what nonprofit can't. Um, the donations would go, none of us, I should, I should say, none of us get paid for this. We are entirely volunteer. So all donations go 100% into the uh, pre preserving. And what does that mean? That means um, getting experts together to be able to talk. It, uh, we travel a lot to get to conferences to talk about preservation, to talk about ways to preserve and to talk about how to preserve. And so, and so that's, you know, the marketing material, raising awareness, that's what we use the funds for. None of the funds go to salaries or consulting fees or anything like that. Um, so if you could follow us, um, email me through info at For All Moonkind, um, and buy a t-shirt. They're, they're awesome looking t-shirts. Hashtag protect the bootprints. All right. I love that. And um, what's next for All Moonkind? I mean, people are going to help out. They're going to donate. Where are you guys headed? So we... Um, we are a permanent observer to the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, and so we go to Vienna three times a year to talk to the international community directly about our efforts and our mission. Our next, uh, we are, we're working on two projects right now in particular that need funding. Um, one is the creation of a children's book because we think it's really important to, to start children young not just about, um, you know, understanding space, but understanding preservation and why we want to protect stuff in space. And so we're working on a children's book that we'd like to get published. The other thing we're doing is um, we're, we're creating a meeting of the minds, a summit of uh, the top 10 space law experts, the top 10 preservation law experts in the world. And we know, we know that nobody wants to be told how to do something. So we can't go to the international community and say, hey, we drew up this convention, can you sign it? But what we can do is create a volume, a manual on everything that we need to think about with respect to um, heritage and outer space and raise all of the issues. Some of the things I talked about here on this show, you know, about uh, non-appropriation and balancing that with uh, protection, but all of those little niggling legal issues that people get hung up on or lawyers get hung up on anyway, um, and we'll create a manual and we want to give that manual to the uh, Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space and say, look, we did your homework for you. Now it's time for you to debate and to get this done. It takes a long time to get a convention negotiated, but if we can, if we can hand them um, all of the research, then we knock off five or 10 years from that, that process. So those are our two big ticket items right now, what we're working on. Um, and, and again, finally, what you can do is call your congressperson and tell them that we must bring the One Small Step Act to the floor of the House for a vote and get that passed. Love it. And I'm, I'm happy to do it. Uh, imagine we'll have some supporters given that uh, we have so many NASA resources here in Maryland in the, and in the, the broader area. Um, so the most difficult question we ask anybody normally who comes on the show who loves history, loves historic places, what is your favorite historic place or site? So I, I, I'll be honest, you know, you gave me, you gave me that as a, um, in advance. And so I, I actually had a long time to think about it. And that's a really difficult question. But um, I think I alluded to it earlier. I really love the, um, 
when a man, when humans interact with nature well. And so one of the most moving places I've ever visited or had, had the honor to visit in my life was um, the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park on the Big Island of Hawaii. And there um, it's called Pua'aloa, Pua'aloa. Um, and there's hieroglyphs in the lava. And and they're beautiful, it's very simple, you know, turtles and, and people, stick figures. And so, you, you know, you think, think like Lascaux in France where you have the, the caves with all the um, paintings. This is so much simpler and it's just in the lava. And I love being in that place and thinking that somebody else thousands of years before me looked up at this same volcano with the same awe, you know, that we have. And we're not that different. People three million years ago who first started standing, people, uh, you know, a million years ago who first started drawing, to be in the in the footsteps, to know that somebody has stood there before me um, centuries and centuries and centuries ago and been awed by nature so much so that they took the time to draw something right there in the lava, to me, is just incredibly moving. So thank you for giving me the heads up on that question, but that is definitely, to me, um, one of the most amazing places on earth. Well, I think it's a great place to end, as you mentioned, footsteps and being in their footsteps and the important work that you're doing on saving a few footsteps uh, a few thousand miles from here. Um, <laughs> we definitely appreciate you joining us today, appreciate the good work, and look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support and remember to keep preserving.